0: is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Navy Secretary Carlos de Toro is in town. He's not here for the water situation at Red Hill, but to check in on the RIMPAC military exercises. Uh, It's said to be the first stop on a trip to include uh, the Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand. His visit came as an onboard emergency Sunday sent two sailors taking part in the war games to the hospital with burn injuries following an engine fire on a Peruvian ship. The training exercises this past week included large-scale medical emergencies brought on by a natural disaster or a military attack. Military personnel from several countries, along with a handful of civilians, participated in the one-day event. The Conversations Russell SubiONO got a front-row seat to observe the Ford Island exercises.
1: While most people familiar with RIMPAC know it's an opportunity for military forces to practice wartime situations, many may not know it's also a chance to engage in responses to civilian disasters. Such is the case with the Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief Medical Response Exercise on Fort Island. When I arrived at the location, two separate sites were set up. We started the tour in the area where several large brightly colored tents had been erected to simulate care for disaster victims. In the background, a handful of noisy generators supplied power.
2: Today, We have basically all the branches of the military working here in in partnership. And we're here um, uh, to exercise that interoperability so that uh, when there are disasters, that we just work together to get things done. And it's all basically saving lives. Everybody you see here who's actually in a red shirt, those are part of our medical team and these are folks that are uh, spread throughout the state. You got ICU nurses working at hospitals. You have respiratory therapists. You have emergency room physicians. You have pharmacists all spread out throughout the state. And then when there's time of disaster, they all come together, you know, within the coalition. And then we just hear this is what we do for disasters.
1: That's Mark Moriguchi, the director of Hawaii Healthcare Emergency Management. It's a coalition of healthcare agencies and providers that have leveraged all of the healthcare resources within the entire state to help each other out in times of disaster.
2: And today here, we're uh, exercising that uh, capability in multiple ways. So uh, you guys passed the, uh, the first tent. That was uh, initially set up for a boulage or we'd make up for uh, the casualty actors and they would get their fake injuries and then they would start running them through triage. Um, then we run them through uh, red, yellow, green uh, tents uh, based on their injuries. And then we'd start moving them out to transportation and the hospital. So basically what the scenario is, is there was a big hurricane that came through the state and this hurricane just, just totally decimated everything. So uh, work with the military to move civilian casualties. So why, do, why does today matter? Today is um, a very important day because we get to really exercise and we get to work with each other i think that's the best thing ever Um, we have um, uh, our tent set up just to simulate moving patients through it but it's actually just getting everybody together covid has just put a hand damper on basically everything here so getting everybody together for the first time in like two years is just is just something that you just
3: can't really simulate
1: inside one of the holding tents several casualty actors sporting several types of simulated injuries waited patiently for their number to be called to board a military helicopter and be flown to one of Oahu's hospitals. You appear to have your arm severed. Yes. What is your role here?
0: So I'm just portraying one of the um, casualties that happened in the um, emergency and so they're transporting me to the hospital they tourniqueted my arm to kind of control the bleeding so they're going to transport it to the level one at Queens and try and recess me over there.
1: And how long did it take to, to do the makeup and the costume here?
4: Actually
0: pretty quickly originally they didn't really know what to do so we kind of just you know what let's MacGyver it <laughs> just cut my shirt and just spill a bunch of blood on it.
1: And when you're in the process of going through the exercise do you have to be like fully in character yep, or yep, yeah. yep. do you already have a plan of what you're going to do when it's time?
0: Yeah, um, so my character, I'm still conscious, but I'm kind of getting really weak. My blood pressure gets really, drops a lot. So um, if they don't do a certain thing, then I'm pretty much, I'm done.
2: Okay. <laughs> so this gives the hospital practice on accepting an aircraft, and it also gives practice for, for us integrating with the military of putting these patients onto an aircraft. So it's a great way for us to work together as far as civilian hospital and the civilian hospital community with the military. And I think it's just invaluable. We have all five branches of the military, the US military here on a wall, which is just, you don't find that anywhere in the country for us. And this is just a great resource that if a disaster would happen, this is the kind of resources and the kind of things that we would get done.
1: In addition to addressing injuries, maintaining the flow of information is a priority. A mobile emergency operations center was also part of this site. Four laptops with internet connections allow the team to communicate with any coalition member on any island to be able to shift resources where needed. The next part of the tour took me to the second site, a tactical operations center. It's populated by green and khaki-colored tents, surrounded by dark-colored shipping containers and razor wire.
5: You'll see inside a, of our tactical operations center, and you'll see a collaboration of multiple countries, uh, six to be exact, just kind of collaborating together with information and ideas and, and how how to do something, you know, how to get after different problem sets when they actually have to do it in a real-world scenario, so it just clicks and makes sense.
1: That's Lieutenant Commander Andrew Winkler, the Chief Staff Officer for the 1st Naval Construction Regiment. He says the collaboration amongst military personnel from different countries in the Tactical Operations Center exemplifies this year's RIMPAC theme, capable, adaptable partners, especially when it comes to adaptability.
5: In this scenario, Hurricane Kai a uh, category four hurricane, 150 mile an hour winds came on four days ago or four days into it. That's the thing about humanitarian assistance, the need for humanitarian assistance, it can come at any time. And so uh, that's kind of where I see the adaptive piece to it. It's like, we've got to be able to come up with solutions, uh, almost on the fly, if you will, that's why we have some, and we'll see it inside, kind of operational planning teams, so OPTs. And so kind of three main elements inside there, they're kind of uh, parsed out for search and rescue. Then the second one is provide logistics and support, okay? And the third one is kind of restore critical infrastructure. And that is a wide range of different things to kind of get after in a, in a, in a scenario. and frankly, could happen in real life, exactly why we're exercising that here.
1: But even after touring the two campsites and learning more about both medical response and tactical operation exercises, the question still remains, is Hawaii ready to respond to a major disaster? Here's HHEM Director Mark Moriguchi again.
2: Disasters are always dynamic. You gotta be able to adapt with it. Like even today we had um, the weather so that that kind of complicated flight operations. So pickup uh, was supposed to be around nine o'clock for the folks on the Big Island, but that had gotten pushed back because of the weather, you know. And then they also, they I think somebody ran into mechanical issues. So I got to go find out to see if they actually fit, uh, could actually do that leg. So it's it's you just got to roll with it, and um, just kind of be ready for as much as you can. And that's why we have exercises like this, and that's why we have our partners with the military and, you know, for um, state government, counties, and we all have to have that good relationship so that when we need things and to get things done in the state, I can tell you that healthcare will be ready for it. We'll be ready for, for anything that comes our way. And the partnerships that we've made, we'll be able to get a lot done a lot quicker than we ever have before. And I think the pandemic for that and it's gotten all, all, all of us together in the same room together. And it hasn't been like that in like years. So I, th- I think we are. And it's not just our agency, but I think healthcare is. And it's the coordination and how we just set the exercise up and how everything got done. I think it's going to work out very well.
0: That was Hawaii Healthcare Emergency Management Director Mark Moriguchi talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. RIMPAC 2022 exercises will continue in and around Hawaii and California until August 4th. This is the conversation on statewide, member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
6: Onihoa,
5: Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Molokai, O Lana, O Mau, O Hawaii.
0: Today in the Backyard Quiz, we're visiting a Caribbean island that shares a number of similarities with Hawaii. It's located in the leeward chain of the Lesser Antilles archipelago. Like Hawaii, it was formed uh, as a result of volcanic activity, a volcano which remains active today. Our Caribbean sister island has even experienced the destruction of cities and towns at the hands of its volcano, as we have here in Hawaii. But the similarities don't end there. The island in question also uh, shares some ancestry with Hawaii. It is currently a territory of the United Kingdom, while Hawaii was once a protectorate of the British Empire. To truly solidify the connection, there is even a street in Honolulu with a very similar sounding name. Think you know where we are? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
7: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nereid Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. Nereidhawaii.com.
0: Innovation in sanitation. Think sewage. Hawaii is facing a major challenge of moving close to 90,000 homes off septic tanks and onto more environmentally friendly alternatives. This week, the focus will be on wastewater and how the federal infrastructure bill stands to give innovation in this area a boost. Stuart Coleman is the executive director of Vi, which stands for Wastewater Alternatives and Innovation.
6: It's a historic opportunity, with Congress passing the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, also known as the Investment Infrastructure and Jobs Act. And so, you know, it's the largest in American history. And they've specifically called out water and wastewater issues. And so Hawaii could be the recipient, you know, tens, if not maybe hundreds of millions of dollars over the next five years to work on critical infrastructure needs that are we're way behind on. But my fear is that the state's not going to apply for some of these competitive grants and we're going to lose out. So we're hosting our third annual convening to really kind of bring all the parties together to really think about this issue. So, you know, sometimes people get really locked in their silos, but we have people from government, from county level, all the way up to federal level, we have people from EPA attending virtually and in person. And uh, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green is going to give some opening remarks and Senator Chris Lee and Council Member Kelly King. And so we're excited about, you know, just trying to get the state and all the people involved together on this issue.
0: And you're going to be talking about some new technologies that are on the table that are uh, worth exploring. What's on tap?
6: Yeah, so we have four companies that are presenting. Two of them are flying in um, from the mainland. One is Orinco Systems, and they have, like, state-of-the-art conveyance systems, which is a huge problem because, you know, sewering costs about a million dollars a mile, and it's incredibly disruptive. You have to dig up whole... Roadways, especially in rural communities where there are only two lanes. That's uh, kind of horrific. But they use smaller PVC pipe, and it's called a pre los model, pressurized liquid-only sewer, and they can just go right underneath the surface. So it's amazing technology, and counties across the country are adopting this. And then we have another company called Elgin. It's a veteran-owned company and won all kinds of awards. And they have a septic system that is enhanced that gets rid of the nutrient pollution. Uh, So the problem with traditional septic systems anywhere near a coast or water body or drinking water wells is they don't get rid of the nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. And when that gets in the nearshore waters, it can really uh, harm coral reefs, can lead to algal overgrowth on the reefs, and it also can um, get in the drinking water, lead to elevated rates of nitrogen, which is really dangerous. So we've got these two companies coming, which we're excited about. And then we've got uh, um, a local nonprofit, excuse me, a nonprofit from the East Coast that's doing local work here um, called Ridge to Reef, And they've got a bioreactor garden. Um, that's a passive system that also treats for nutrient, nutrients. Um, and then we've also got Fuji Clean. Um, which is a a Japanese company, but they're locally represented here, and they're ATU, an aerobic treatment unit. And so they um, also do nutrient um, reduction. So you're probably picking up the key to all this is nutrient reduction. Um, That nutrient pollution can be really bad for for our environment and our health.
0: So these technologies, are they then uh, meant to be used in areas where, let's say, we can't – easily switch from septic tanks to sewer lines at least you could minimize the effect on the environment let's say like you said in those coastal areas
6: yeah and so um, you know Hawaii uh, as you know was uh, the last state to ban cesspools by several decades and so we um, are way behind but we have the opportunity to leapfrog past a lot of the rest of the country that went from cesspools to septic systems, and so septic systems you have a septic tank and then a leach field, and they put those all up and down the East Coast. And what they're finding is that it doesn't reduce that nutrient pollution, and so they're having to you know dig those up and replace them. And so we can avoid that stage. You know, septic systems will work fine in remote areas that aren't near a water table or a water body. Um, but in places that are very close to water, you do not want to use those because of the, the nutrient pollution. And so, yeah, we're looking for ways to um, convert these cesspools but make them better than um, what they have on the mainland and are having to replace right now at a very high cost.
0: So we can kind of leapfrog over that process.
6: Exactly.
0: And so the idea, though, is to say, hey, this technology is out there. It's innovative. It's innovative. Try it, you know, if you've got a project that needs to be converted.
6: Yeah. We helped pass a bill this year at the legislative session, HB 2195. And this bill offers grants of up to $20,000 to homeowners with cesspools to convert their cesspools to, you know, to better systems. And it's for, you know, low to middle income folks because the cost is, you know, can be really high and, and most people don't have the money for these. that's encouraging and then as we talked about earlier you know the the federal funding is something that we're really trying to get Hawaii behind and and really start applying for these grants because you know if they the government the state hired you know two or three grant writers for a couple hundred thousand dollars you know all total or three hundred thousand with benefits and everything that could reap millions and millions of dollars that would be the best investment the state could ever make.
0: So could these be used in places like Kahalu where, where yes. the counts are very high?
6: Absolutely yeah we've had really off-the-chart water quality readings in those areas where it's almost like there's a sewage spill um, that's how high it is and these are just you know quite often during the rain you know you get just all the stormwater runoff and sedimentation but you're also getting a lot of those cesspools that are just draining out into the nearshore streams and underground systems that are going right out into the ocean. And so we're seeing these very high bacteria count.
0: You know, and I wonder too, just with the weekend, with the high waves that we saw on the on the South Shore, what effect that might have on you know some of these systems. I, I know we actually had some water main breaks.
6: Exactly. So when you combine this, this is one of the biggest swells in decades. And then you combine that with the King Tide that we have, you know, which is like basically what sea level rise is going to look like. It can be disastrous for sewer systems. And, you know, we learned recently that sometimes the sewer system during heavy rains, almost 50 percent of it is just rainwater that infiltrates into our sewers. And so they don't really have the capacity to, you know, currently they're working on it to treat all of that volume. And so, yeah, bad for cesspools, for sewer systems, you know, all that, the rising levels, you know, underwater, you get into the aquifers, you know, because that salt water intrudes into the, into the aquifer um, when you have these really high king tides. So, yeah, I think it's quite a combo we've had recently.
0: And then is there uh, anything of these types of technologies that also could be adapted, let's say, on uh, places on the Big Island? Because we have a number of septic systems over there
6: yeah Hawaii, the Big Island has the highest number of cesspools um, in the state they have almost 50,000 of them and so yeah a lot of these technologies especially what we think is you know the Orenco conveyance system that that preload system that's pressurized liquid only sewer you know with the lava rock and everything digging up those and trying to put in massive sewer lines is going to be very expensive and very difficult And so these, you can either put them right underneath the surface, you know, this PVC pipe that connects all these houses together, you know, trench it like a foot underneath the surface. Or you can do directional drilling and it just, you know, they have cameras and they can steer around bones, tree roots, anything that they might find and connect all these houses together. So, yeah, we think that's going to be a promising technology, especially or places like the Big Island. All those cesspools are gonna to have to be converted by twenty fifty anyway. And in the Cesspool conversion working group, which I belong to, we're mm-hmm. you know, we're also talking about earlier deadlines for priority areas where we know that there is, you know, massive pollution issues and so that means health and environmental issues. Speaking of the Big Island, there was one study that showed twenty five percent of all the drinking water wells in a certain area where there were a lot of cesspools tested positive for fecal indicator bacteria and so you know that's dangerous when it gets in your drinking water you know we we just can't play around with this so yeah we're looking for homeowners who want to get you know ahead of the rush and be proactive about this issue
0: that was stuart coleman of vi which is holding a meeting of the minds in this area of wastewater Uh, That conference is tomorrow. The public is welcome to join virtually. Uh, The conference runs tomorrow from 1 to 6 p.m. Look for links on our website later today to register.
3: Support for HPR
7: comes from Broadway in Hawaii, presenting Hamilton, written by Lynn Manuel Miranda, coming to Blaisdell Concert Hall beginning December 7th. Tickets available 10 a.m. this Thursday
3: at Ticketmaster.com.
8: As we
0: get older, it's more important than ever to know what medications are safe, both those available over the counter and the many pills that are prescribed. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me
8: today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a geriatric expert who can help with the mysteries of medications. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
3: On the next Fresh Air, the writer and composer of the Tony and Pulitzer Prize winning musical The Strange Loop, Michael R. Jackson. He describes his show as a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show. Jackson started writing it when he was working as an usher at the Broadway show, The Lion King. Join us.
1: Beginning this afternoon at three following On Point,
0: Civil Beats Reality Check takes a closer look at pregnancy centers in the islands in light of the recent reversal of the abortion rights law, Roe versus Wade. Reporter Megan Tagami joins us today. Hi, Megan.
4: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Yes, and you know, your story was interesting. I didn't realize that these uh, pregnancy centers were still around. I mean, they've been around for decades, and back in the day, I think they called them problem pregnancy centers. Uh, what did you find out?
4: Yes, so like you said, um, these pregnancy Pregnancy Resource Centers, they've been around for a while. Um, The first started around the 1970s, um, right after Hawaii uh, made abortion legal. And just from my reporting, I found out that, you know, um, these centers have continued to provide services, um, and some of these centers are hoping to kind of expand their outreach, especially in light of Roe v. Wade being overturned last month. Um, In terms of the services they provide, they um, do not provide abortions and they do not refer women to abortions, um, but they do provide um, services to women, um, including um, pregnancy tests, um, some places provide ultrasounds, and then a lot of places will provide, um, you know, resources to help women um, who have just had um, their baby. So that can include baby formula or um, baby cribs and things like that. And, you know,
0: if I recall, oh, back in the day, the, the, these uh, Pearson uh, uh, Pregnancy Centers came under fire because I mean, they're, they're essentially pro-life. And um, I think folks just want to know that uh, if they're pro-life that, that uh, the people who go there know that.
4: Yes. Um, so, um, Like you said, there's definitely been a lot of debate about um, pregnancy resource centers in Hawaii. Um, The the centers themselves say that they make it clear that they do not provide abortions um, and they do not refer women to abortions. But other people, including some doctors on the island, um, are concerned that these pregnancy resource centers are really confusing women who are really just trying to get the full range of their reproductive um, health options, and that's including, of course, abortion as well as um, adoption, prenatal health, and... And all kinds of things. So there's, I think that controversy and that debate has definitely continued. Um, and I think that it's definitely, you know, becoming more of a concern or definitely at least emerging to the forefront of people's minds um, after Roe v. Wade has been overturned. So is the
0: thought that there might be more of these centers uh, cropping up across the country, um, you know, because of the reversal with the Supreme Court decision?
4: From what I talked, Um, when I talked to people, at least in Hawaii, um, honestly, they weren't too sure. Um, you know, some doctors I talked to said that people who are in favor of, um, who are in favor of restricting access to abortions, um, might feel galvanized following the reversal of Roe v. Wade. But um, doctors say that they're not really sure if Hawaii will see more pregnancy resource centers kind of cropping up, especially because abortion is still legal in the state. Um, Nationally, I think there are, um, there is, maybe a greater chance of more pregnancy resource centers um, popping up, especially in states that um, have restricted access to abortion.
0: And these centers, I mean, uh, like I said, I remember uh, back in the day they were called the uh, uh, problem uh, pregnancy centers, but they, they also go by different names, right? The Pearson Place, um, a Pregnancy Resource Center.
4: Yes. Um, there's definitely um, a bunch of different names. Um, I think more generally, pregnancy resource centers have also been known as crisis pregnancy centers. Um, in Hawaii, um, there's a range of pregnancy resource centers. Um, so um, like you said, there's Pearson Place. There's also um, a place for women in um, Waipio. And then there's also other pregnancy resource centers um, You know, on the island of Oahu as well as um, other islands.
0: Right, and, and these centers do uh, help guide uh, women through uh, the adoption process, um, you know, if, if they opt not to have abortions?
4: Yes, they're, um, at least from what I understood, um, I guess the Pregnancy Resource Centers really see themselves as providing resources um, and guidance to women from the start of their pregnancy until they, um, you know, have a baby. Um, but of course, they are discouraging women from having abortions.
0: Okay, all right. Well, um, thanks so much for your report there, uh, Megan. Thank you. We've been talking with reporter Megan Tagami with today's reality check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. It's been 32 years since Lieutenant Governor Ben Cayetano launched A-plus, an affordable after-school program in our public schools, started to help latchkey kids, elementary age children, left alone at home while parents worked. But generally, after-school programs are being tapped to help make up for lost learning during the pandemic. hPR's Casey Harlow joins us today. Good morning.
3: Good morning, yes. So learning loss, emotional, social needs of students have been a consistent theme throughout education especially within the last year or two and that doesn't seem to be changing at all for the upcoming year so i wanted to know about after school programs because there's a lot of them here and you mentioned a plus uh, a plus elementary school kids but there is several other programs that are mainly targeted towards elementary school kids and middle or intermediate school students there are a few in the high school but Most of the programs uh, skew towards those intermediate and elementary school kids. And so what made me think about after-school programs is that uh, at the beginning of the legislative session, there was a lot of talk about how after-school programs like A-plus would help with uh, learning loss and also meeting the needs of students. And so I kind of went around looking at some of these programs, and I came across After School All Stars is a nonprofit organization that operates at 11 Title I schools, uh, primarily serving intermediate and middle schools on Oahu and Hawaii Island. And if you're not familiar with Title I, that refers to an education program from the federal government providing financial assistance to schools and education agencies with high numbers of children from low-income families. The DOE's threshold is around 47.2%. Of a school population. So you may think Waianae, uh, Nana Kuli, and several other schools within urban Honolulu and also on the west side as well. I wanted to look at what the benefits were of these after school programs. And uh, Marissa Akui is the head of the DOE's Community Services Branch. She oversees the after school programs at public schools. And she says, you know, this is kind of like a double dose for students who need the extra help.
9: The department does believe that out of school time programs are critical for students providing safe and engaging activities in the time between when school gets out and when a parent comes home from work. As we are addressing the learning gaps due to the loss of instructional time over the past two years, OST programs are critical to provide that additional structured academic support.
3: And so circling back to after-school all-stars, Paula Fitzell is the executive director of uh, this organization. Uh, Her program operates for three hours a day, usually from 3 to 6 p.m., but generally after schools because some schools end at noon. uh, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a change from what I've been used to. But for three hours a day, they do programs such as homework, and she outlines what these three hours a day look like.
8: So we do homework help and we do tutoring, tutoring where it's available, where we work with the teachers. After that, what we do is we do a variety of enrichment sports programs, but they're based on like a schedule, like a, almost like a college schedule. So if a kid comes in and we provide like a timetable for the day, for the week, and they choose what classes they want to do, and they will do that for the entire quarter. And the reason being the idea is like skill retention and skill attainment. For instance, if we do cooking, they're not just going to go in there and slap a few musubis together. We're going to teach them cooking. We're going to teach them math. We're going to teach them STEM, you know, through using the kind of fun stuff as a vehicle.
3: And so going with the cooking metaphor, right? And they do have a cooking course. So how they incorporate that is maybe they ask a student to, you know, instead of making a recipe for one, make a recipe for, uh. you know, 10. <laughs> and so then they have to do the calculations yeah. and all the measurements. That'd make
0: it fun, you know, it makes e- sense. Exactly,
3: exactly. <laughs> These after-school programs do face some challenges. Uh, financially, within the story, I brought up funding. Funding is kind of a big deal because Fitzell says, you know, even though her program is structured to meet grant requirements from the federal and state governments, Sometimes that's inadequate. It's not enough to serve uh, per student, and she knows that some agencies on the continental US get a lot more. The comparison is $3,000 per student for a year, but here is $700. Oh, wow. Yeah, Uh, but staffing is another, and money can solve staffing, but also, you know, just in general, staffing is an issue here. And even though Fitzell says her organization invests in staff and through training and pays pretty well, Sometimes it's hard to find people.
8: Numbers of staffing hasn't been a problem for us. We pay well, we train well, and we have a lot of resources into that element. But there's a lot of turnover and it's not easy. You know, no organization pays a living wage. Education is not well paid. You know, you do it for love and whatever. But the longevity of our staff is difficult because... In order to really develop your programs, you really need staff who can work here for a long time. And our program staff, you know, not only they can't afford to live here, you know, on, a, on the wages that any after school program pays, but it is a very difficult job and it's a lot of responsibility.
3: And just to wrap things up here, there was a proposal at the legislature to give, allocate $6 million to these programs uh, to kind of match federal pandemic relief funds. Uh, but that did not go anywhere.
0: Okay, well, I guess they'll, they'll try again next year. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We have been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow. Check out his stories on org. Today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to tell us the name of an island in the Caribbean that shares a remarkable number of similarities with Hawai'i. The island in question was named after an abbey in Barcelona by Christopher Columbus. Much like Hawai'i, this island is uh, volcanically active, had a destructive outcome in 1995. That year, the island's then dormant volcano came alive and largely destroyed the capital city of Plymouth. Heavy volcanic activity has continued to this day. The entire southern half of the island is evacuated and quarantined. Fortunately for residents, their island is an overseas territory of the United Kingdom, and many were able to relocate to the UK. If you haven't figured it out by now, we are referring to the island of Montserrat, which has a slightly different spelling as Montserrat Street in Honolulu. And congrats to our winner today, Susie from Kailua. She says she used to live on Montserrat. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs>
7: Support for HPR comes from the Nalu Builds Design Center with handcrafted furniture, art, and specialty gifts committed to using locally and sustainably sourced hardwoods. Hilo store located at 94 Pono Hawaii Street or online at nalubuilds.com
1: on the media a cold case reopened presents quandaries for the reporter like are red herrings bad
0: journalism because i really did want it to unfold like a murder mystery but i just couldn't i couldn't as a journalist i couldn't put information into the podcast that i knew was not true the truest true crime on this week's
1: on the media beginning this evening at seven following the body show
7: This week, American Roots celebrates down-home music from our Hooli Records. Live from Berkeley, California, it's a concert from the Freight and Salvage Coffeehouse. On stage, Ray Cooter, Taj Mahal, Maria Moldauer, Michael Doucet, and many other friends. I'm Nick Spitzer. Join me for American Roots from PRX.
1: Beginning Saturday evening at 6, following weekend, All Things Considered.
0: Nearly two decades in the business, an hour-long Netflix special under his belt. Tennessee comedian Nate Bargatze was at the top of his game when the pandemic hit in 2020. But the global catastrophe didn't slow him down. He adopted to virtual formats, workshop, new material, and even pushed out a second special in 2021. Now he is in the middle of his rain-check tour, making good with audiences on shows that he had to cancel in the past two years. And he's making the trip to headline in Hawaii this coming weekend, one of the rare remaining firsts in his long career. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Poet spoke with Bargazzi about whether he still gets the uh, pre-show jitters before performing for a new audience.
7: Uh, I was talking about it last night, actually, like for a show. I did like a benefit show last night, and it was in a small room, and... uh, you know, so it was like not kind of what I've been doing. And it was, you're always like, you, you're not nervous, but then right before you go on, you're like, oh man, this could go bad. You know, once you get your first few big laughs, you're like off to the races.
9: Is there a joke or some sort of theme that you've been trying to land for years?
7: I can't think of one exactly. I mean, I remember at the beginning, you would think something's funny, and some of it you would think, I'm not a good enough comic to tell this yet. Mm. And, uh I did have – the one joke that I had, I used to always say something about having milk. Like, I would, I would say, like, as for me, I only had milk in my life if a, if a woman was in my house. Like, so it was either my mom, did my wife. And when I was alone, like, I never thought about buying milk. And so, like, that general idea, like, I would tell it on its own, and it never really worked. Mm-hmm. And then when I had the when I had a joke about I ordered an iced coffee with milk and the guy messed up with ice put milk with ice in it.
10: I had, I had a whole uh, issue at a, a Starbucks. I went into Starbucks, ordered uh, iced coffee with milk, nothing crazy, you know. And the guy like looked at me weird. You know, like when you like get something in your head, you're like I'm pretty sure he doesn't know what I said, but you're like too far in. You're both touching the credit card, so. You just gotta go. All right, let's see what he thinks he heard. Uh, and I go to the end of the counter, and he gives me uh, milk with ice in it. That's. I had to ask him. I go, "What is that?" He goes, "Milk with ice in it." I was like, "What do you think? Do I look like a psycho? Do you do?" I don't. I've never ordered, I've never ordered milk publicly in the history of my life. I've never once in my life been out and thought you know what i could go for right now a cup of milk i'd love to do that i'd love a cup of milk i'd like to drink it out of a straw something else i've never done let's do that and then let's put ice in it and
7: then in that joke i say i've never bought milk publicly in the history of my life and so the <laughs> joke ended up bowling down to, to just that
9: you've been doing this for coming up on on two decades do you feel like your sense of humor at its core has evolved
7: uh it's like you learn how to be, I think you just learn how to be funny. Like everything <laughs> you say, you know, like you weirdly, not that you can nail it down, but you kind of know what makes you funny. And so that way a lot of stuff you talk about is way more open. Like you're, everything you say becomes a little bit funnier because you're just funnier.
9: Hmm. The headline for this story is gonna be, just be funny, says Nate Bargatze.
7: That's the, that's the gist of it. Just be funny. <laughs> you know?
9: <laughs> this tour is the, the Rainchet tour, which I assumed has some allusions to the pandemic. Of course, there's been a lot of upheaval for comedians, as well as other folks who work in the entertainment industry over the last two years. We're not out of the woods yet, certainly, in terms of our relationship to mm-hmm. the pandemic, but we are making strides. Does the, the name of your tour have any other meanings?
7: Uh, that was, I mean, that was basically it. And it was, cause we had a, we had a, you know, reschedule so many dates and like they got rescheduled so many times. I think I didn't want to like not acknowledge it, but then I don't want it to be like, it was like COVID tour or something or whatever. I did that with a special too. Like my special I shot in the pandemic. It was like, I did some COVID jokes up top just cause it's like, you're shooting a special outside when people have masks on. Mm-hmm. So you're like, you can't, you feel like I didn't want that whole special to be about it. So, you know, it's like you want to be a kind of a break from that. But, it's a, you know, it's, a little, it's just a little acknowledgement to be like, I'm not a lunatic. I understand what's happening in the world.
9: Do you think that the, the the people who really influence your comedy, are those influences in your professional world, in the larger entertainment industry or folks you know personally?
7: Well, my so my dad's a magician who will be on these shows in Hawaii, which is very fun and he does comedy with magic. So my dad, that's a gigantic influence on me, and that's an influence without even me realizing it's Well, it's my timing and all that stuff, I feel like really comes from him.
10: My dad is a magician. He's done that my entire life. He was a clown at the very beginning, just in case you're like, how do you get into something like that? Uh, <laughs> he goes clown, then magic. There's two steps. You can take them in either order. He was, I was born, he was a clown. It was never weird to me. I thought everybody's dad was a clown. <laughs> my uh, first memory of my life is I was five years old, and I remember my mom walked me out to the front yard, and our dad, my dad pulled up with this old red Mazda. He, he's dressed as a clown. That doesn't even faze me. That's just how he left. How else would he come home? And, <laughs> the Easter Bunny was in the passenger seat. That's the first thing that I remember to my life. If you want to know how you get into comedy, that's a pretty good nudge. In
7: definitely when I started comedy, being funny with my friends and you're, you learn how to be funny with your friends. And, uh, and then being, a, when I was comedy, I was big, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. So watching him, then Brian Regan. And, and then as you get into it, you get into see like Bill Burr or, Chris O'Neill was, it? like, comics are like, I'm clean, and, like, they're dirty, but it was, like, comics that you saw, and those, they would influence you a lot just because it was, like, I never even seen, you know, it's, like, you get into a world, and you're, like, all, all you know is, like, the famous stand-ups, you know, you don't know the, then you get into stand-up comedy, and you're, like, oh, there's a lot of funny stand-up comedians.
8: Mm.
9: Similar to that, I was I was thinking about how you've talked about your family, both in your shows and how they influence your life. I worked in childcare for many years before I started in public radio. And kids have such an energy that all I was able to do when I came home from work was lie on the floor and do impressions of the ridiculous things that they had said to me. Do you do you find that that being a parent has just fundamentally reshaped one how you're funny what you think is funny and to how you kind of relate to the world.
7: Yeah. I mean, having uh, a kid is, uh, I mean, it's gotta be probably the most relatable thing. I imagine, you know, either everybody was a kid or had a kid or, or have, you know, whatever. Uh, So yeah, I mean, it puts things in perspective and it's, I always think it, I don't know, it keeps you very grounded because you like you have a, you have a kid. So you have someone, that you gotta make sure everything's okay for them, and you, then you end up your schedule can be dictated by their by them their schedule, even when they're babies to when they start. Uh, you know, our daughter's loves horses and she's in dance, and they're playing soccer or something. Like you kind of gotta do all this stuff, uh, so your life becomes not about you as much. And so that's I think that's a good thing uh, to realize it's about someone else. So that I mean that very much plays into it. And then seeing like what she, like our daughter, our daughter, she's, uh, she's very funny. And so seeing her make jokes, she makes a lot of jokes. And kids are just, they're just so happy. It's, it, it, it's pretty special. And it's, you love the innocence. I think seeing the innocence is nice too. Mm. Like it's just, it's, I, I love the, they can get worked The innocence of even when they're upset and they can get really worked up over something and they're telling you and it's like nothing. I I, I don't know a good example. Someone could use their crown at school and they colored with it and they didn't think they should have. And they could be really worked up about it. And I do. I like, there's something that's so wonderful about that. Like just seeing uh, it's being like, I love that. This is how it is right now for you (laughs) versus, you know, there's going to be many problems that you, everybody has to face. But like at this moment, it's beautiful that it's like you can get worked up over the, and that's, And that means everything to them at that moment.
9: Yeah. I also find that kids have the most devastating insults. I was telling a kid one time that he couldn't watch any more TV. And he turned to me and just looked me dead in the eyes and said, you're useless.
7: (laughs) (laughs) They do cut, right? Like if you have anything wrong with you or you're self-conscious, a kid will, they can just, pick you apart. And that is, that's so funny. Being called useless is a very funny, it would hurt.
10: You're like, golly. I, uh, here's what I'm doing for, you know, my daughter's future environment is, uh, what I decided to do, they, they say we won't have water. So I put a bunch of buckets outside to collect water. And when she turns 18 and she's like, do I get money? I'm like, something a little better than money. Uh, (laughs) Bet you've always wondered what those buckets we're doing outside. Well, they're all yours and that's for your kids and their kids, everybody gets a bucket of water.
9: I think as as we grow up and we age, we lose that natural confidence that we have as kids. And one of the things that I really appreciate that you incorporate into a lot of your work are moments that seemed like they could have been very embarrassing at the time. When you incorporate that kind of self-deprecation in your humor, does it make it easier for you to sit with those experiences, or do you feel, still feel like you're white-knuckling through those memories?
7: No, I think it makes it easier. I mean, it, it, the, I, I like just making people laugh. And too, like when people relate to it and they laugh, I would say they're laughing at you or laughing with you. And for me, it doesn't matter because uh, uh, cause it's still counted as a laugh. And it's almost like reward – like weirdly enough, I don't know if I ever thought of it really, but it's like it is kind of rewarding because it's like it also helps knowing that I'm not the only one. You know, like you're realizing like all the stuff that I've done, dumb, and if I make – you know, it's like, well, people are like, oh, I've kind of done that, at least some of the audience. Mm. And so you're like, all right, I'm not alone out there. Like I'm not – I'm not the only idiot.
9: The stage for so many people is the absolute worst place they would want to be. Just an absolute nightmare. Did you always find this kind of almost meditative quality to it or this this connection? Or did that come over time, you think?
7: Uh, No, at the beginning, you don't want to be up there. At the beginning, I mean, it was like, it's a nightmare. Like, you're nervous. You want somehow this to not go on stage. I remember I wanted to place the building to burn down. That's what I always thought. <laughs> if I could show up and it was on fire, I'd like, I tried to go up. I tried. <laughs> I was going to go, but the building was on fire and there's nothing I could do. Uh, but the building never set on fire, so you just had to go on stage.
9: 20 years later, the building's, building's later. still standing. I'm still one that building to be. Every
7: show I go to, maybe this building's on fire.
9: <laughs> well, I'll keep that in mind coming up for the shows you have next weekend.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not on fire. I do hope that. Uh, I'm excited to come out there.
0: That was comedian Nate Bargatze sharing a few laughs with the conversation, Savannah Harriman Poe. You can catch more of uh, Bargatze's comedy this weekend. He will be performing at the Maui Arts and Cultural Center on Friday and at the Blazeville Concert Hall on Saturday. You can find more details on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we plan to get the latest on the efforts to manage visitors to Diamond Head. Have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk Backline, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.